This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Now we're going to go on to uh, Andalusia. I'm, uh, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. Andalusia. Season. Oh, I think that's from the opposite page. That's kind of weird. Um, much of the citrus. This is a, apparently a kind of a, a orchard system with a lot of citrus and also avocados um, and uh, pomegranates. Was that right? Pomegranates. Um, and it's an organic operation. And um, they were got. They finally got to the point where they're kind of like um, gonna gonna shut the property down. They were gonna throw. They were gonna just say, "We're all done here. This property, this property is spent. It's over. We're all done." But instead, they called in Sep. All right. So uh, Sep says, "Much of the citrus fruit bursts open, a sure sign of a disturbed hydrological balance." Most leaves were heavily mildewed, a result of the spray irrigation. Spray irrigation is quite ineffective, only a part of the water actually reaching the roots. All right, so we've got an ir- another irrigated system. And uh, I'm sure that I marked somewhere in here that kind of talked about how much precip they got? I kind of feel like it. It's even. He, he mentioned one thousand milli, millimeters to like forty inches of rain, oh, wow. so quite a bit. Wow! They okay. said it was both a blessing and a curse. So. Right, but it was again all in the winter time. Frost-sensitive fruit like papayas and mangoes should be protected from the morning sun most important to protect against frost damage. So, if you're going to grow a lemon tree outdoors in Montana, that's one of the things to do, is you've got to block your tree from the morning sun during deep winter. So, my understanding is, is that if your tree freezes and thaws, then, um, but the way that it thaws is very slowly and not from radiant heat, but from convective heat, then it'll be fine. But if your tree freezes and thaws where the sun, and the way that it thaws is, is the sun hits it, then, then the tree, the branches will burst. 
and so it won't recover. So this is one of Sepp's many, many tricks to be able to grow citrus up at the parameter hop. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? Okay, I'm going to take that as a yes. Yep. We started right away. The first retention lake was begun. Terraces and hugel cultures created. New plants introduced. Windbreak hedges planted. An old well reactivated. The irrigation, irrigation system changed. Mixed crops of grain and legumes were sown to protect the soil from being washed away by the coming winter rains. All right. Then there's some pretty cool pictures kind of showing all the different shapes it did. And it looks like, and, and I'm going to just guess that what they did was a bunch of Sepp's um, Crater Gardens. Is that, that's my impression of what was done here. Does anybody else? I mean, it looks like the Crater, Crater Gardens. The pictures, the images that are in here. No one knows? No one can confirm or deny? I don't have enough knowledge about to those gardens. I mean, they do sort of go down in step level, like step level, step level, and then flat on each level. But, um... But I don't have enough examples to know. It's one of the reasons I'm excited reading the book. <laughs> right. I think this would be one of those things that would be great if we could get Zach to kind of chime in here. And then Zach would know. Um, Isn't there one on the next page? Like a photograph? Yeah. And it looks it's like a, a crater garden. But it, I don't see the yeah. word crater garden anywhere. And, um, no. I mean, it, he's talking about water retention spaces. With the idea and then he's got trees underwater somewhere else. <laughs> Which was another thing, too, another. is it's like, how much are these trees going to be cool with getting flooded for even part of the year? I'm not sure that they will be cool with that. But I guess it's happening and it's working, so it must be okay. Um, the thing is, is that I'm kind of looking at thinking like, okay, is this a pond... You know, which in a way, a crater garden is a pond. It's just a pond that doesn't have any water coming in or water going out. It's just kind of a, a hole in the ground. But but the way that he does it, he always makes them have terraces, which is exactly the picture that we're seeing on the top of page 58. Is this kind of terrace thing that he does with these crater gardens. The next part I have marked up is lots of different root vegetables are now growing between the rows of fruit trees. They support the building of humus and activate soil life. Selling the vegetables could become its own business, but they could also be given back to the soil to increase overall fertility. So I kind of like I kind of like the option that he gives there of like you don't have to do anything. If you do nothing, it'll be great. And if you want to do something, like go harvest it and sell it, you can do that. That'll be fine. That'll be great, too. 
You know, the more effort you want to put in, the more that you reap the rewards. But you could just kind of, you know, coast if you want. <clears throat> but I do, I do like how it's uh, going to be a lot of root crops to help, you know, improve organic matter in the soil. I think that is a, an excellent solution. All right, that takes us to page fifty-nine. That's that's uh, that's our chunk for the day. Does anybody have anything to say about these this little segment? Is this uh, is this process that we're going through? Are you guys enjoying it? Getting through the book kind of in this fashion, a few pages at a time. Yeah, it's nice to see the process that stuff goes through with these different properties. Yeah, um, I'm going to say uh, I was listening to the previous uh, podcasts, and uh, I think I've got some ideas on what uh, Sepp's talking about with water. Um, have you ever heard of uh, Victor Schauberger? Is that I'm, I'm going to say officially no. But I do know right. that there is a book that has been suggested to me like three times, and I keep not writing it down. And and everybody believes it's this. It's a book that Seth has read, which makes him believe that water has this life above and beyond what we would think of as like you know bacteria or microorganisms in the water. Well. He is Austrian as well, so it's a bit of a coincidence that they're both from the same place. Um, he's got some pretty interesting ideas. I mean, Wikipedia would suggest it's all quackery, but uh seems pretty logical to me. But, yeah, it's basically, he suggests that uh, water is at its most dense when it's 4 degrees C. So... He, you can go on YouTube and you can see a log flume that he built, and he managed to float down all these logs which are heavier than water, uh, knowing that if he uses this four degrees water, it will basically prop up the logs in the water. He also combines that with the use of uh, curved. You know, he doesn't send it down a basically a canal. It's a curved kind of system, and he uses natural shapes, and uh, it basically, you know, it, it works. <laughs> All right. So you believe you understand now by reading this well, other book? I, 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 I'm a very, you know, I, I have a limited knowledge of it. I've read some of the books and I've seen some of the videos. I think it's quite an interesting theory. Uh, I wouldn't call me an expert though. I mean, if you want to find out more about it, there's Callum Coates' videos, uh, and there's all the other videos on uh, YouTube. And there's, you know, there's engineers and universities in these videos looking into all the theories of Victor Schauberger. It's quite an interesting thing to, you know, watch. <laughs> how do you, how do so, you spell Schauberger? Oh, yeah. Uh, 
S H S S C H A U B E R G E R. Okay. And it's so, Victor with a K. It's Victor with a K. Let's oh, say. okay. All right. Now I got to go change that part. All right. He has some. There's some very good videos on YouTube about him. Katie, you got your hand up. I have a question, and it's something I've been wondering. When I, whenever I see an orchard, they place these lollipop trees apart exactly in grids. And I'm, so when they, when they are picturing, when I'm picturing this uh, property before Seth got there, I'm picturing the rows of lollipop trees. And uh, one of the things he says is that the trees are not close enough together to protect each other and to offer each other uh you know, shade and shelter and that kind of, uh, I guess, he didn't say nutrient, but, you know, all the things that trees provide each other. But then other people say that they space them that far apart so that each one can get as much sun as possible. Like, each one has an optimal, non-interfered. And I'm wondering, well, when you space them together closely, you're obviously taking some of the sun. Um, can you speak on that for a moment, if you want to? Yes. First... They're both right. And so it is, I, um, I, I gotta say that the answer lies in almost every, once, once you start exploring our limited knowledge of anything biological, then there'll be two opposing camps. Um, some saying they need to be bunched up more, and others saying they need to be bunched up less. And um, oftentimes, almost universally, they are both right. And ultimately, the thing that you have to do is to experiment. Try it out. Try, because another thing is, is that it might be a little different in your region, in why, like what solution is best. Um, I do feel like this is a good time to point out that uh, I think modern orchards are generally like modern apple orchards, I should say. Modern apples. So whenever I think of an orchard, I think apple orchards. Modern apple orchards, they, they no longer use the lollipop. They use something far worse. And um, they, they use the uh, dominantly something that's kind of like Espaliered apple, apples, espaliered fruit. Um, the uh, they use a lot of uh, dwarf stock, and then um, the the trees are trained to follow these wires, and um, uh, they kind of um, it's kind of more like a vineyard, like they're growing, they're making apples. They're forcing the apples to grow more like grapes, so it's easier to harvest. Whoa. Yeah, weird. Um, and they put a lot of time in the winter, in their off-season, into the pruning that's involved to keep them in this shape and thus maximize the amount of sun that they can get for the whole orchard while also maximizing the total amount of fruit that they can get from uh, per acre. Uh, and the, the biggest challenge that they have is harvesting, because when they come on, they all kind of come on at about the same time, 
and then it's a race to get it all harvested and taken over to the warehouse. And so um, it's like, ready, set, go, now, all at once. Go, 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 go. And so, um, yeah, this, this system of forcing it to grow lower so it can be harvested easier um, is, is a big part of what they do. So, all right. Coming back to your question, because, you know, a more conventional orchard is going to be more of the, uh, uh, the lollipop style. Um, and, and a lot of lollipop style comes from there being deer. Like deer have access to the, to the trees or, or other browser animals like goats will have access. And then it's like, oh, look at this tender young branch down low. I'm going to eat up all of the little bits off of that. And so then um, uh, you end up with uh, a bunch of trees where the, the bottom four and a half feet have been stripped clean by the deer or the goats or whatever you might have. And so that's why you end up with a lot of them in that kind of lollipop shape. But when you keep the deer out, then the trees tend to prefer uh, a more pyramid shape with branches close to the ground. All right. Uh, let's let's move forward. I'm sorry, what? Oh, I was going to ask you if you think that the deer are, and the goats are providing a healthy thing for the tree or if it's better to be. But you want to move on to the next one. <laughs> are the deer helping or hurting? And the answer is yes. Yeah, I know. I know. You can you could talk about either side, really. I I think I'd prefer to do it without the deer, you know, um, personally. But I could I can hear the arguments for. So, um, but, but moving along, um, I think that uh, I mean we we. <laughs> I am the supreme executive producer with Bacon, Cheese, and Sparkles for a movie called Permaculture Orchard. Um, uh, I got an email from Helen Atow. She said, uh, this was years ago, she said, uh, you've got to go see this amazing movie called Permaculture Orchard. And I said, if you still have it, go to the seven-second mark and tell me what you read on the screen. And then the next email I got back, <laughs> you're such a fucking smart ass. <laughs> this is why people won't talk to you. <laughs> because that's where it says you're the supreme executive producer, right? <laughs> yeah, I think that's the point. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, um, I, we made a podcast reviewing the movie and, um, uh, and in the movie, I, I or in the in the review, I kind of say, okay, first of all, I kind of feel like the phrase "permaculture orchard" is an oxymoron. And uh, right now, Helen is talking a great deal about food forests, and um, and I keep and, and I, of course, as always, Helen and I argue, you know, nonstop about all the things and, uh, and and I do believe that after every argument we have her systems tend to be more closer and closer to what I advocate <laughs> but uh, I would have to say that um, 
if they're going to have an orchard, I believe that no more than 10% of the trees in the orchard should be any one species. And I also believe that any species that is not a taproot should be able to mingle its roots with a species that does have a taproot. And also any species that is not a nitrogen fixer should be able to have its roots mingle with a species that is a nitrogen fixer. Um, so those would be my general rules for if you if you want things to be in rows or whatever. But um, I don't want things to be in rows myself. It seems like Sep was cool with it, but it, I also kind of feel like the function of this chapter is is my interpretation is is here's a level two person talking to a level ten person. And the level 10 person feels like he's getting away with telling that person about level 5 techniques. And so the rows of fruit remain. And I kind of feel like, and it does sound like there were some um, windbreaks that were added. And I kind of, and there was also clearly something I'm guessing is that the Crater Gardens were introduced. Um, I kind of feel like I want to see more texture to the landscape. I want to see more berms rather than um, Crater Gardens. I suppose the Crater Garden, a beautiful thing is, is that it kind of acts as if it's got a berm fully surrounding it. But And you know what? Maybe this is an area where I need to grow more. But in general, I don't like the Crater Gardens. They probably work really well, and I just have more to learn to really appreciate them. But I, one thing I kind of think of is, is that I worry that it is a frost pocket. I, I worry about... Uh, if it, if there is still air, if uh, not only is there a frost pocket building in there, but also if there might be carbon dioxide building up in there, um, like deadly carbon dioxide. I know, I, I'm going to guess that everybody has watched some sort of nature channel kind of thing where it's like uh, we're at the base of this volcano or something, and carbon dioxide pools here, and we watch as an animal goes into this depression and then just dies from suffocation. And the animal's like, why am I suffocating? I don't know why I'm suffocating. Everything seems fine. But, um, and then, you, you know, the, the person in front of the camera lights a match and holds it up and then moves the match down, and when it gets to a certain level, it goes out because there's no more air. It's, it's a pool of carbon dioxide. And so, um, I don't know. Uh, I worry about that kind of thing. And so, I have not embraced the Crater Garden, and maybe I'm a fool. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, it could be, you know, a matter of scale, too, because any kind of breeze is going to be, you know, blowing air through. It's going to help recirculate some things, but certainly you are going to have some accumulation of that carbon dioxide at the bottom of essentially a large earthen bowl. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know, it... um but it, uh, if it's if it, like let's say if you've got this bowl, then um, won't the the air moving through the general area go over the bowl? I mean, it, I suppose there could be a little eddy current, a little little kicking things up or something to kind of stir it up a little bit. But it might just go just strictly over the bowl. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if it's an issue of what kind of, like in a hotter climate, like they're growing some mangoes and things, so they must have some amount of heat. Um, if they want to have a cool, still pocket to protect from a windier, like, and maybe if it was really hot and windy, <laughs> then what you would want is like a cooler, less windy hole. So maybe it's just super, like, if it's appropriate for that moment. I... I would still try to make a collection of ponds, even on dry land. And and that's another thing, too, is they're kind of saying, like, we get so much water all in the wintertime, and they're trying to capture that. And I kind of feel like what I want to do is make a series of ponds and then also put in a series of solar pumps that pump only when they get sun on them to move the water back up to the top and keep that water circulating. Um, but then a pond has to have an outlet, in which case, if a bunch of carbon dioxide starts to build up there, it'll drain out wherever the outlet is. So, and then on top of that, you know, if it's a warm climate, I mean, a swale is an excellent solution, I think which is basically going to be exactly this same thing. I mean, isn't the crater garden kind of a, a, a swale that's all in one gob? It does all the same stuff. Excess water comes, and it builds up in here, and then it slowly leaches into the earth. It acts as a frost pocket, and, um, and I think a swale, although all the swales I've seen are usually no deeper than three or four feet, and uh, the crater gardens are like, I don't know, 30 feet deep, 25 feet deep. But a swale, once it's empty of water, could be a place where it accumulates um, carbon dioxide as well. But it's, I don't know, it it just seems like it wouldn't be as much. It doesn't. There's not. There's not as much opportunity to accumulate that much carbon dioxide. So I, I don't know. I I do believe that there are ways to create intentional um, uh, frost pockets, and. Um, uh, but I, I kind of wonder if it would be wise to make those frost pockets, like at the base of the frost pockets, be shrubs and trees, 
which then might allow the carbon dioxide to pass on through so that you don't have this death zone. Because I like to think that if you make an intentional frost pocket, like here in Montana, so that way, you know, in late July, if, if it's really hot out, you can go to the frost pocket and have a little picnic. Like here we are sitting in the shade and it's so nice and cool here. Oops. Little Timmy died. <laughs> what did he die? I don't know. He just fell over. What is Don't sit down to me. <laughs> dying over there, you know. I, I don't know. I, I, I do kind of feel like uh, um, if you're going to make an intentional frost pocket, it might be wise to put a little bit of thought towards the whole carbon dioxide issue. But maybe I'm just being a nervous Nelly. Maybe I'm just being silly. And so it's, it's, it's too much. You can check it every day for dead rodents. Possible, possible. Which, in the nature show, what happened was, is that the rodents would go there and die, and then the predators are like, oh, look, free lunch. Ah, you're right. And then they would die. And then other predators are like, oh, look, lots of free lunch. <laughs> you know, et cetera, et cetera. Rather than swooping down and taking away the, the dead rat, it would swoop down and then keel over, and you'd have a pile of, like, every animal in the whole area. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've seen that some, too, where there was, like, a lake at the base of a volcano like that, or just wherever it was erupting, and the, the animals would go down to drink. And I don't know if it was due to carbon dioxide or if there was, like, sulfur that um, got into the water, made the water poisonous. I, I can't recall now. But, yeah, probably the carbon dioxide. So there's a Hollywood movie with Pierce Brosnan called Dante's Peak, where um, basically that's the idea is there's a volcano and there's this volcanic, volcanic activity and the, the little lake turns acidic and stuff. And, and But the funny thing is, is that it is, um, the movie is filmed in Wallace, Idaho. Um, and... Uh, uh, we all got together, like everybody here at Wheaton Labs, we all piled up and we went to Wallace, Idaho, uh, I don't know, what was that, a month and a half ago or something? And um, what a what a fun little town. I mean, of course, it's got this lovely history of not only all the filming of Dante's Peak happening in this little town, but also... Uh, up until like the mid '80s, it was uh, active. It was like the last active uh, prostitute town, and uh, uh, so um, I was. We were there visiting this fella, and he was telling us how it's like uh, they got all the tours and the museums for all the prostitute stuff, and and uh, and he says. You would think it'd be the fellas that'd be interested in this, but they really are bored to death. It's the women that are interested in it. It's like, really? And so um, uh, I know that uh, that Jocelyn went there with some friends, and they went on the tours, and they came back, and she handed me, here's the uh, this thing that they had, like, in 1910. It was their catalog of women that were working at the time, and they called them sporting gals. All right, and he has, there's a Hollywood movie called Dante's Peak that talks about the 
acidification of a local lake due to volcanic activity. It's um, it's it's a Hollywood movie, and it was it's uh, it's not it's not too bad. <laughs> hey, Desert of Paradise by Sepp Holzer. Go buy the book while you can. <laughs> Uh, anybody else have anything else to say about what we've read today or uh, what we've read in the past? Nothing. Katie, what? Um, I was noticing he was saying that that business was in the red for 20 years and they hadn't shut it down yet. So go them. That is a long time to be in the red and not have shut down. Somebody must have really loved that place to not shut it down for 20 years of red. I think, I think that that happens a lot with a lot of horticultural endeavors. You know, what you're, you, you, you want to, you're just loving these plants, right? You just, you can't just see them go. But it sounded like this guy owned like many different farms. And then this one was on the chopping block. But before chopping, maybe let Seth Holzer have a go. I do like the part where he said, like, here comes the guy that sells me all of my fertilizers and Omri-approved pesticides. He didn't say Omri-approved, but it's an organic place, so I suppose they've got some sort of equivalent. But, you know, all of my organic pesticides and my organic poisons. And, uh, and he's like, I don't need any of that anymore because sepulcher. So he's succeeding and he's eliminated all of his expenses for those pesticides and fertilizers and all that stuff. And uh, he's, it sounds like he's, the business is now thriving. Yay! Yeah, lots, lots of different farms have to, or farmers, I should say, have to have second jobs essentially to pay the bills, you know, that without subsidies, like in the U.S., there's lots of farms that wouldn't survive because they just can't make a profit. Right. And, uh, and uh, there's a lot of farms that just simply run in the red, like apparently these guys did for quite a while. And there's so many different ways to run in the red. But now we're kind of getting back to, like, the review of the movie called Broken Limbs about the apple industry in Washington State. And, um, yeah, but that's a, that's a podcast that's already been recorded. In fact, have, there, is, there is a large document that I wrote out at Permies. It's really big. Um, and it's called How to Get Permaculture Apples into Safeway. Have any of you ever looked at that? I thought I did but a long time ago, though. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah. Oh, you read Okay. So, Katie, you remember reading it. Well, let me, let me ask this question. Have I ever put it into a podcast? Hmm. I can't answer that one. I don't know. I don't have the distinction either. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I've got a... I, I can't remember all the different things I put into the podcast, and it's like everything is just such a scramble every day to do all the things. 
but maybe uh, maybe I need to go and find that document and basically read it into the into the um, podcast. I know that there have been a few times that I've done that. It seems like the pod people in, enjoy that format where I've written something and then I kind of read a paragraph or two in and then we visit about it and then we read a few more paragraphs in and visit about that, etc. And um, I've had a lot of extremely positive feedback on that. I know that I've seen some people, like, they call it the way that they live their life, and they put in this, their signature on Hermes. Like, this is my philosophy now, or something like that. Um, but I, I kind of feel like it's an important thing. Just off the top of my head, it, it's kind of like uh, um, the, the question that was put to me by, I was giving the tour here, I think it was either in the middle of a PDC or uh, just before a PDC or something like that. And there was this little apple tree that we started from seed, and it was like, I don't know, 12 inches tall, growing um, in the front of, near, near the Fisher Price house. And somebody asked the question, how do you get permaculture apples into Safeway? And in the essay, I, I tried to basically answer the question, but then I kind of, after attempting to answer the question in a variety of ways, I didn't say, I kind of feel like it's a level two question. And I'd much rather talk about going to level five where the question is, is moot. And, um, and I go through, I think I go through about 15 different possible scenarios between um, getting your permaculture apples into Safeway and ending up with GERT. And, and uh, because, of course, GERT doesn't care if her apples are at Safeway. And um, I, I kind of want to advocate the GERT path a hundred times more than the path where it's like I'm trying to sell apples to Safeway. All right, that, that, that might be something we might want to try and do uh, one of these days after the Kickstarter, maybe, is to um, record that. Anything else anybody wants to talk about before we wrap up today? No? Okay. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums of permies.com, where we talk about the mighty, the glorious, the amazing sepulchre, homesteading, and permaculture. All, all the time. All the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.